0: Foster, Foster Care, Care Nation, Nation. Listen, up. Listen up this is
1: Foster Care and On Parad Journey
0: Strength for the powerless, courage for the fearful, hope and healing for wounded hearts. Welcome back to Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey with Jason and Amanda. And today's guest we have is Dr. Brianna Gentile, which I am going to totally mess up a million times. So we're going to call her Dr. G today. Dr. G completed her bachelor's in psychology at Gonzaga University. She went on to receive two master's degrees, one from Golden State University in counseling and the second from Palo Alto University in clinical psychology. Dr. G founded Dr. G's Lab, a trauma-informed design consultancy. She has authored authored studies that have been published in peer-reviewed journals and has been an invited speaker about trauma-informed practices and design at multiple national conferences and symposiums. Dr. G has spent over 10 years working to improve outcomes for children, teens, and their caregivers working through adverse childhood experiences, known as ACEs, and toxic stress. Her work with behavioral health providers, communities, and families has allowed her to develop keen insight into the advantages. No, I'm gonna screw that up. Into the challenges of supporting resilience through trauma-informed practices. She is currently the director of product design at Center for Youth Wellness. You guys can really see where she could fit into our world because adverse childhood experiences is something that I think we have some experience with. What do you think, Amanda?
1: Maybe just a little.
0: I have a few in my <laughs> background. Do you know? Do you have any?
1: Um, I think I hit almost every mark.
0: How about the kids in our house? Do any of our kids have any of that? Several. Yeah. I think all would be a more accurate (laughs) statement.
1: (laughs) Quite possibly.
0: So we're happy to have you here today, Dr. G, because we have trauma in our kids, in ourselves, in our past. We have all these average childhood experiences. I've heard it talked about. It sounds really important. And I would love to see what you have to say about it today and maybe help us out, become better foster parents.
2: Oh, I love that. You didn't tell me I had such a high ticket. Um, so, yeah, let's, let's, let's jump right in. So let's start with what ACEs are. So um, as you said beautifully, ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. Um, the idea is that there's 10 of them in the original study. So there's three big categories. There's abuse, neglect, and household instability. So within abuse, you've got physical and emotional Within neglect, you have physical, emotional, and I forgot one in abuse, you also have sexual abuse. And then with household instability, is where a lot of the country, and I should probably say a lot of the world, will have most of their ACEs from this, this category, which is mental illness, incarcerated relative, mother treated violently, substance abuse, and divorce. So the idea of this study was that. You know, uh, children who experience these, particularly ones who have at least four or above, are going to be at higher risk for health outcomes that are negative in the future, such as heart disease, chronic disease. Um, they actually have a 20-year, if, if they're left untreated, a 20-year difference between those who had their ACEs or low ACEs or high ACEs that were treated. So there, there's a 20-year difference in their lifespan, which I think is fascinating. Like, that's a that's a decent amount of life that you could lose out on if you have untreated aces. Um, I think it's also important too, before we jump in about, you know, what it's like to parent with your own aces is to just briefly talk about the different stress levels. So, you know, you have positive stress, which is Basically, just the presence of a caring and trusted adult can offset that rush of stress hormones, like you fall, right? That's a little bit of a stress. That's a positive stress for the most part. You fall, you hurt your knee, your parents come in or or a supportive adult comes in. Really not too big of a deal. And then you have tolerable stress, which I like to think of as like, you know, preparing for a podcast, for example, (laughs) or preparing for a test, right? Those are tolerable levels of stress. Your stress hormone goes up. Your body does what it needs to do for that moment, but then eventually it passes and it goes back to this normal state. And then in the last kind of continuum, part of the continuum, we have this idea of toxic stress, which is really, these really powerful stress hormones, and they totally overwhelm our body and our brain. And if we don't have support as a child, if we don't have support from a caring or trusted adult, it can result in a lifelong impact of mental and physical health, so as well as their behavior. So I think that's really when we're talking about ACEs, we're kind of talking more about that circle, so to speak, if you think about it as, as circles of stress. And that, that's really where ACEs can live, is in that toxic stress circle.
0: Yeah, and we've seen a lot of those sorts of toxic stress in our lives. Um, I, I don't know if you've heard Amanda's backstory. She grew up in a home that was not so... Um, Great. Karen, yeah, I was trying to find the, the kind word. It but. was
1: not leave it to beaver.
0: That it was not. Amanda should have. Been, <laughs> she for sure should have been in the foster care system. Um, she was. She was missed by the system, but um, had a few people in her life who really reached out and helped when they could. And so, so that was some of the some of the small pieces of respite she had in her childhood. Um, <clears throat> I had a. I had a pretty decent childhood for the most part, but to be fair, I grew up among a, a religious group that that wasn't terribly healthy for me. And it it caused me a lot of those stressors and anxieties in, in my later life as well. So we have that. And then we bring kids in and amongst our kids, um, I think all of them at a young age have been drug exposed. Um, A couple of them have seen a parent murdered in front of them. Um, Some of them have had some real long-term chronic drug exposure have been, have lived homeless and in vacant houses throughout the um, kind of the the part of St. Louis city that's just, just run down. And, and that's where a lot of people live is in those vacant houses. Um, you know, one of them was born addicted to methamphetamines. So we, we've got a lot of stuff in our family. And so it's, it's challenged for us a lot of times because some of these kids come in with this stress. Some of it comes in with this, these trauma reactions to life. And we've had to learn over the years that we have to deal with our own trauma as well as we work through this. So, Tell me, what is the magic secret to being amazing parents when we've had our own backgrounds and we have kids with difficult backgrounds as well? I'm sure you that have the magic pill.
2: Magic. <laughs> that magic pill. It's actually been rushed rush delivery to you. You guys should receive it in about four minutes by the time this podcast is over. Yes. Um, yes, I know. It's very exciting. So, you know, it's, it's already demanding to be a parent. Right. Whether even if you don't have your own ACEs that you're dealing with and even if you're you're working with kids who don't have ACEs, it's already demanding. So what you guys are talking about is like layered complexity. Right. And, and so you're going to you might find yourself reacting to toxic level of stress, which it sounds like, yeah, that's definitely happening. And it can show up uh, for parents. It can show up as impatience, difficulty calming down, a quicker than normal temper, you know, stress overload can make it really difficult to read your children and model good behavior. So I think that first and foremost, it's like important to understand that it's difficult to do those things as a parent already. But when you have your own A score, and especially if it's a high A score, you're, you're, you're working with a, a different level of complexity than other parents who don't have A scores. So I think that it's really important to know that about yourselves, and I am too also a, a thriver of aces what I like to call myself. so I do find myself being you know a little bit more impatient. I do find myself taking quite a bit longer to calm down, I think than I see some of my other parents um, and definitely, the thing that really gets me is um, that ability to model good behavior is not always accessible like there's times where I really want to model good behavior and I noticed myself and I'm like, not, I didn't do that. I did not do that. That was not good, good modeling. So I think that the secret to, you know, quote unquote, happy families um, is that you're not always happy. And I think that's a really big, important thing to realize. Um, but what is important is learning how to handle those occasional arguments. For me, sometimes they're not as occasional as I'd like them to be. So I'm going to put in that word frequent. <laughs> you know, the frequent arguments that might happen. Um, especially those hard times in a way that leaves you actually you know loving your relationship and and keeping that relationship intact with your kids um so i I have a few ways to do that um you know i think with with uh kind of the families that you have born children everybody says oh it starts in infancy and that for me freaks me out and i gave birth to my two children and it still freaks me out like it started in infancy I knew that going in as a psychologist and all these other things and it still freaks me out. Um, So I get that it starts in infancy. I understand that, but I always like to say, you know, early is better, but it's never too late. And so when I say it starts in infancy, I'm going to actually like skip over a large part of that part because I feel like that ship sailed. Right. And it it failed for me as a parent. I, I think I did have, you know, some great moments with my kids, but I know for sure there were some moments that I Missed out on, um, you know, playing peekaboo and singing stories and, and all those things that they say you're supposed to do. I couldn't exactly do at the time, um, at all times, because I was dealing with my own, my own stress and my own um, depression, my own anxiety. Um, you know, I've been three years sober. So I had my, my own uh, rattling with addiction and things like that. So I wasn't always able to do that. And so um, I think infancy is important but for so many people and especially for so many people who are probably listening to this podcast, that shift has failed. Um, so kind of what else, right? Uh, I think the other thing too is, is getting support. And I would love to know what it's like for you guys. Um, because I, I said, I I gave birth to my two children and, and parent support groups were a joke for me. Um, I couldn't handle having conversations about, uh, you know, toilet training and using this particular food spoon and finding this particular food and all these other things that just felt rather, you know, surface. Um, I needed deeper support than just a typical, you know, mommy group and, and how to stay fit. So I want to, I would love to kind of pose a question to you guys of like, what do the support groups look like for foster parents? Or are there any and like, how have they been?
1: So there's several, several support groups online, you know, on Facebook, You can find several of them. Um, I have several of them on my Facebook page. And I will have to say as a foster parent and a biological parent, it's really hard to reach out in those groups because I see so much negativity. Um, People will ask questions and they're just looking for help and they will get bombarded with negativity and how could you and how dare you and so people pose these questions and they put in front of them please be kind or don't respond if you're negative and so it makes you not
0: want to reach out yeah great example is back around the holidays when someone asked you know how much would you spend on on your kids and care in your home as opposed to um as opposed to your biological kids. And and I think they had even put in there that, you know, the, there's some groups or some programs of the state that help, help to um, provide stuff to the kids and that sort of thing. And oh my goodness, the vitriol that came out of that one was just blew my mind. You know, why would you even think it's any different? You know, why would you, if you don't think these kids deserve the same thing your kids do, then you don't deserve to have kids. I mean, people just went, went straight out hard and, Uh, she's not wrong in in the, uh, the online side, especially because the internet gives us that feeling of anonymity. So we can say all the mean things we want to say. And you don't have to worry about the big guy across the, you know, standing in front of you popping you in the nose for saying it.
1: Well, it's hard to reach out when you don't feel safe. And then when you get all that negativity, when you're already down.
0: Yeah. It makes the online support groups less and less effective for sure. that's one of the things that, that, um, that I would love to see built and i'm certain there's something out there like it i'm in a dads group online and and that's one of the things we we are i mean we are vicious about keeping vulnerability there and if you're going to come in and be that guy you get one chance and the first time you step out of line you're probably gone because that's the only way we can keep the integrity of that group up but it's a real challenge online and in person support groups we have one of those in our area that i know of and unfortunately, they have those those support groups are available on days when when we're not typically, and so we, yeah. we haven't been a part of that for a while. And so there's you know our support group um, when you step outside of that into family. Well, Amanda's family is not really part of our life. No. And nowadays, neither is mine. And so that whole fam- familial support thing that's been out the window for a long time for us. So this is a place where we really struggle.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. And it really sounds like almost like the support is actually isolating, which is supposed to, it's not supposed to serve that purpose. So I really hear what you're saying when you're saying, um, you know, you you almost don't want to reach out for help. And that's how I was feeling too. And that's me as a biological mom being like, you know what? I'm suffering with postpartum depression way past when postpartum is, (laughs) you know, four years later. And I'm still like struggling with like, depression and anxiety and um when you reach out and you get these reactions of that doesn't make sense don't you find the joy in your child all of these you know judgmental type reactions and comments um you just don't ask you don't you don't reach out for help and you end up not getting support so i i do feel you on that um and it's great to hear kind of what you guys are saying because you know it's not that impossible to build that type of stuff in, if you're, if you're one of those people who's going to start a group that's, you know, a, a licensed professional ready to start a group for foster parents and, or even just start an app and build an app for foster parents that can give them support. It's really important to know that one, it's not that easy to reach out. Two, there's a lot of judgment going around. And three, vulnerability, it needs to be at the core. Like how can you build that in? So I think that that's huge. And And I love Jason, that you're, your group is like one one strike and you're out. That's really awesome. Um, and I, I I wonder if, you know, mom groups are similar if we're a little bit more lenient, but I love that you guys are really focused on that. That's really important. So yeah, you know, getting support and, and connecting to your community I think looks different when you're a foster parent because um, you know, sometimes like you said, you don't have access to your family. Um, and that's gone out the window. And especially with ACEs, there's a lot of times where those relationships have been severed a long time ago and there's not family support. And then there's a whole thing of trust, right? Like, how do you connect with your community when you don't trust your community? You don't trust the other people that are around you. So we're sitting here being like, we need to have a supportive relationship with our children. And yet we can't even find that supportive relationship as an adult. So it makes things, you know, really complicated. So we, we need social connection. We know that, um, we know, study after study shows that social engagement, it boosts our health and it boosts our happiness and all of these things. But I just feel like there needs to be a little bit more focus on what happens when you have lower resources, right? Like when you don't have a YMCA membership or an after-school program or summer camp or anything like that, like how do you, how do you find that connection to community? So I think this podcast is probably one way for people to do that. So that's important. Um, And then just kind of figuring out as a parent, like, what other ways can I connect to community, if any? Um, And I think, too, you know, this idea of knowing your kids and knowing their friends, uh, I think it becomes increasingly more difficult, to be honest with you, especially as a foster parent. uh, You know, if you have teens, it can be really difficult to figure out who's where, um, whose friends are who. And sometimes they don't even tell you. Right. So there's a lot more. There's a lot more that you don't know, I think, as a foster parent. And as a biological parent, I know I struggle with that, too, uh, because our kids are becoming a lot more visible online and, and, and invisible to us, I think, as parents. As they turn to, in, you know, to the outward world, they're becoming a little bit less, I guess, trusting, maybe, of parents' advice, of, of parents' you know, leadership, guidance. So they're looking to other places and so it can be hard to figure out yeah you know who do you who do you trust and how can i talk to my parents i don't know if parents are really um having the conversations at the dinner tables that we used to see uh so i think that that's also a little bit hard too is to, to know where your kids are and who their friends are um and i think you know the kind of the final thing about this magic <laughs> potion is um they've got to be a go-to for the hard stuff so you know, kids are gonna have difficult things come up in their lives. And the question is who do your kids go to, right? So maybe it's mom, maybe it's dad, maybe it's a, a pastor, a priest, who knows, right? Uh, a sports coach, a school counselor. But if, if you can encourage them to have one supportive adult in their life, even if it's not you, you're far more likely to have a more resilient kid than you would, especially if they experience high levels of, of adversity they'll have better school uh, behavior. They'll have better health outcomes than the kids who are not resilient. And so I would just say, if it's not you, that's fine. Be okay with that as a parent, that it's not going to be you and encourage them to find that one special adult that they can actually, you know, go to when they have difficult things come up.
0: Yeah. That's something we've done in the past. Our oldest son, he, um he wanted to learn to play guitar as a young kid and, I laughed and said, look, I can teach any idiot to play smoke on the water with power cords because I can do it. So I know any idiot can. Um, if you want to play guitar and I'm going to pay for it, you're going to learn how to play. And so he took him to a program where the guy actually taught classical guitar. And Mr. Chris was not only an amazing teacher, he was great with kids, but he and my son had kept a connection for years and years, even after he was outside of the the program and and had moved on um i think they still occasionally connect online from time to time and he was one of those people that i when my when cj our oldest son was going through some hard stuff i reached out and said hey chris you know here's some of the stuff that's going on if you have a a minute here and there to you know check in with him from time to time if you hear something super scary let us know if you would but you know he's he's needing some connection and and that was one of the few places where he was willing to take that sort of a connection from another adult that he would not have with us. Because when you get to a certain space in, in parenting, I think your kids just decide that there are parts of their life. They're not going to talk to you about.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Kudos to you for noticing that and for not being, you know, one of, one of the very many, many, many self-centered parents who say, no, I want it to be me it's got to be me. I want it to be me and forcing that to happen. Cause a lot of parents will do that and it just creates more and more distress. So you should really definitely, you know, pat yourself on the back for, for having that, you know, uh, confidence, I guess, as a parent to say, you know, it's not me right now, but it, this adult definitely can do the trick.
0: Well, don't tell me to pat myself on the back. Amanda will tell you <laughs> that it causes, there's an air pump back there and it makes my head get bigger when I do that. <laughs>
1: No, we were desperate. We were desperate at that point. We didn't know what we were doing. We just knew that we had a kid in crisis, and that child did not feel like coming to us. So we, the only thing we could think of is, what's the next best place for him to have an outlet? You know, and it happened to be his guitar teacher because they were really close, but it helped.
0: Yeah, especially because CJ is a very talented guitar player. Um, At the well, at like eighth grade. I think he was playing college level material. He's just a talented guy, and so they, they they really connected on that level. That was their connection point, and that's been a challenge for some of our other kids because so, sometimes it's difficult to find that that other re- responsible adult to put in their life. Because I don't know about um, about what life is that like in your world of the or your corner of the world out there, but um, we have fewer responsible adults in our world than I thought we did. yes that is true
2: (laughs) yeah I think you know especially in a city like San Francisco um, our circles are small and we we keep them small because we just don't know without knowing a lot about the other person if that person is you know relatively know they're safe we don't know if they're you know they're good in that sense, if they're beneficial to our kids, or if they could do more harm than hurt. And, you know, I think too here in San Francisco, we're really careful about, you know, there's a high level still of of sex trafficking, which is huge, right? And so when we see adults that we don't know that aren't our coaches or our our teachers or something that we don't know are, are part of our kids' lives, it's kind of a big fat no. And so we really have to trust us as parents here in the city. We really have to trust that that other adult, which I think is why so many of us will probably say like, no, it's got to be me, right? We got to keep it in this circle uh, because we can be so distrusting of other adults that we don't know. So, but I'm with you on that. There are definitely less responsible adults um, than I thought there were in the world. So I'm with you on that.
1: Well, I also think that it's difficult for parents to reach out and ask for help for somebody else because they feel like I'm failing. I'm failing my child. If if I can't parent my child, I'm failing.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's been even even myself, you know, and I only have two kids who are really good kids for the most part. But there have definitely been times, even this weekend actually, to to be quite honest, where I was like, I'm failing my child. I'm totally failing my child. Right. He had this moment of of pure frustration and you know, there was there was kicking, there was throwing stuff, there was just real anger. And I realized like, wow, I totally failed my child at some point, somewhere down the line, like what's going on? And it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, when you when you look back on it and everything's kind of settled, like It's really not that big of a deal, but you have this whole narrative in your head about how you could have done things differently long time ago, how you, you know, didn't reach out to this person or how you didn't ask for help. And I think that happens a lot more, I'll be honest with you, um, of parents who have had ACEs themselves, because again, like you guys said in the very beginning, we're still trying to heal our own trauma. And a lot of it is suppressed. At least for me, there's a whole lot that I just really have yet to deal with. And it pops up, even though I don't want it to. Um, But I haven't quite dealt with it. And so I know that that's going to come up in different ways. Uh, But what it really comes up in is just me, you know, kind of having these really not so great pep shocks with myself of how I messed up as a parent. And I totally understand what you're saying. I, I hear you 100%.
0: Yeah, I know when those moments hit for me, you know, I grew up in a, in a world of religion that involved a lot of dogma and a lot of thou shalt nots, or you're going to hell. And, um, you know, at least that's, that's what I heard as a young kid. I, I don't know that I can say that's exactly what they were preaching, but that's what I heard. A crap ton of that was all that penetrated my mind. And so I know when I see my kids do something, all that stuff that starts this whole thing running in my head. And if I can't get my kids not to behave that way, like, you know, I, I was, I was raised up in that mentality. It said, if you do this stuff, you're going straight to hell, which was a long list of things that we going to send you straight there. And as a parent, it's really easy to start seeing those sorts of things that mind starts to run. You start to build these stories in your own mind that you just chase down the rabbit hole. And it takes me about 37 seconds to be in a horribly unhealthy, unhealthy and unhelpful, um, mind frame for my kids. And suddenly I'm just not a good dad in that moment. And I don't care if we're talking biological kids, foster kids, we, we have, um, adopted kids. So we we have seven kids that we've called our own over the years that come to us all different ways. And that right there is the first thing that will knock me right off of my ability to, to be there for them because suddenly I'm, I'm in my own head space. And we've started working through a lot of that over the last several years. Um, we've got a guy now, and Dr. Tom is amazing. Um, I said it before, and I'll say it again. I don't think he listens to our podcast, but <laughs> Dr. Tom has been our saving grace. And um, do, do you do clinical work, where you, you work? I used
2: to do clinical work. Yep, I used to. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: But yeah, it's, it's been some of our own, our saving graces here. We, we've learned so much by having that ability to reach out and find a guy who does this for a living. And he's able to speak into our lives and help us to see the things that we just weren't able to see on our own. And yeah,
2: that's
0: huge. Yeah. So you've worked with people like that. You said, what what have been some of the, the common themes you've seen of those problems that, that most people face?
2: Yeah, I think the biggest one is exactly what you just said, is going back into what we were told and just getting into a narrative with ourselves to the point where we're no longer present. And of course, we know, you know, when we're not present, it's it's largely a part of our brain, which, you know, the prefrontal cortex just goes offline. And that part of our brain is what makes our logical decisions. And that part of our brain helps us to you know, choose a healthy food or to have a healthy conversation or to calm down, our cortisol levels, they skyrocket up. And so we're feeling like there's a saber-toothed tiger after us in the middle of a parenting moment. And how can you be a good parent? So I think that was the biggest thing that I saw. Um, And, you know, what you mentioned, it really actually brought up something of my own, which was I was told a lot uh, by my grandma who raised me for a small portion of my life, but it's definitely a very uh, important part of my life. And she would always say, um, oh, you'll, you'll miss me when I'm six feet, six feet under. And that just always kept this like thing in my head of just like, well, don't, I can't act out or else she's going to die. Right. Or, or I can't act out or, or she's going to think that I don't appreciate her. And so anything of frustration, any moment of sadness any moment other than like happiness and abiding and being a good girl was like a moment for like you're gonna you'll like me you'll think about me or you'll appreciate me when I'm six foot under and so I, I was like always had this like um this fear that if I didn't behave I would be abandoned and so that came into my whole world as a as an adult and as a parent where I tried to not have that conversation of just like, you know, you'll you'll appreciate me when I'm gone. Or if you have a different mom, when you get a new mom, maybe then you'll miss me, right? I tried so hard not to say that because that's like just a repeat in different words, but it's an absolute repeat of your past. But what it ended up happening as I was trying to not have that conversation with myself is I started to think to myself that I probably am better off, their world is probably better off without me. And that was like a ridiculous thing to think. I understand that. But I had to go to a Dr. Tom, like you said, I had to go to a Dr. Maya. And she had to kind of set me straight, which was like, you know, first of all, like, where is it coming from? And I was able to go back and understand where it came from. But it didn't really help me in the future in the present, right? Like, it didn't help me be like, okay, well, what do I do, you know, and so she was, you know, we had to have the same conversation over and over again of like, what is it about you that feels like your kids would be, actually be better off without you? Why? Where is that actually coming from? And you know, lots of work is still to be done, I will say, but I think what you're bringing up is, is this idea of getting professional help. It's definitely okay. Um, and it doesn't have to be in the conventional way of therapy, right? I know for me as a brown body, Sometimes going to a therapist is just not a place for me. And so I have to go to somebody that's a little bit different. And I have to get that supportive trust and that validation from somewhere a little bit different. So I think that it's important what you bring up, though, is like getting help and working through that is huge. and That came up a lot um, of just like a shame of getting help. You know, that was definitely a thing that would always come up. And then also this idea of of I, I just don't have what it takes. To be a parent I just don't have what it takes and so they would there's this there's a hopelessness in there of like I don't know I don't have the resources I wasn't raised to have the resources I'm not a good enough parent and therefore I shouldn't be a parent so therefore I'm not going to be a parent and it, it was basically getting in the way of them showing up for their kids and I saw that a lot so I think that that was you know what you bring up is real it's really real
0: you know, I've got to ask, because you know, you mentioned that whole prefrontal cortex shutting down, and I mean, I, I'm with you. I, I totally understand what you're saying. I, I understand the amygdala hijack very, very well, and so you know, I've seen it a million times in my own home. I've, I've, may or may not have experienced it a million times on my own. And so, what are how how can somebody who's in the middle of that moment where your amygdala jumps in, and I know when it's fired up because it's that moment when that outside eye looks at me and goes well you're a ginormous a-hole right now and so i know that the amygdala has been fired at that moment and so how do you bring yourself back i mean into the present to put turn that prefrontal cortex back on get that part of the brain operating so that you can you can create the response that you want i mean is there anything short of like licking a nine volt battery and sticking it to your forehead or i mean I, I don't know if homemade <laughs> electroshock therapy. It's a way to go. I'm not, this is not medical advice.
2: <laughs> hey, you know, since you're, you're, since you're bringing that up, let's just go for the full frontal lobotomy. Let's just try that. Um, hey,
0: I make knives. From you know, I, we could do this.
2: Okay. See, you're, you already have the resources. <laughs> you know, I, I like to say there's really a four step process that I, that I use that I find helpful and that I've given to, to several parents. And, the first thing is to stop. Just stop, right? Exactly where you're doing it. it. might look funny. It might feel funny. And your kids might be like, whoa, are you okay? But just stop. And you got to ask yourself, what am I feeling right now? And if you, you can't name it, you don't have to name it. But you can say you're feeling all these different things. My palms are sweaty. I'm freaking out. My head feels like it's about to top. All these different things you can come up with. Number two, take a breath. And ask yourself, am I breathing too fast right now? Am I holding my breath? Can I even take a deep breath right now? And number three is observe. You have to ask yourself, what else am I feeling in my body? All right? What are my thoughts right now? For me, some of those thoughts are, I'm not a good mom. I'm totally failing at this game. My kids are totally doomed. They're going to grow up and be horrible adults. And then the last one is P for for stop. So it spells out stop. Um, And then the fourth one is proceed. So ask yourself, am I okay with what happens next if I blank? Am I okay with what happens next if I yell at my kid? Am I okay with what happens next if I walk away and go outside? Am am I okay with what happens next if I decide to do whatever? And then you have to decide to respond in a way that works best. For you, I think oftentimes as parents, we're constantly thinking about how do I respond it's best for my kid, what's best for my kid. Right now, in this moment, when that amygdala is popping up and it's about ready to just take over your entire brain, you have to do what works best for you. So four, four steps, spells out, stop. First one is stop. Second one is take a breath. Third one is observe. Fourth is proceed. That seems to work.
0: I like that. That gives us, uh, some real tangible things to try because now I have, um, Amanda had to go deal with one of those moments where kids are loud. And I can tell you from this distance, two rooms away that there is an amygdala that has been hijacked. It's about six years old right now. Um, and that amygdala gets hijacked a lot cause well, that's just his, his place in life at the moment. So do you teach these same things to young kids like this or is there a a simpler way or a more effective way when you're working with kids to help them build these same things that we as adults need to have figured out?
2: Yeah you know again I I must be a fan of the number four but um, I think the best easiest way to teach our kids to self-regulate is to one listen to them right so listen to what they're saying and then help them name their feelings. I I hear that you wanted to go out into the street and get that ball and it sounds like you're really angry that you can't go get it. Okay, that's good. Number two, you have to acknowledge how hard it is being a kid. I get it. It is super hard to be six years old and not be able to just like do what you want when you want. I totally understand. And number three, help them examine the consequences. I think is it's a lot better to say like how to examine the consequences than to tell them the consequences. So you just say, all right, if you go out into the ball, if you go into the street by yourself to get that ball, you might get hit by a car and it could really hurt. All right. So that's, that's like not telling them you go out there, you're going to get hit. Right. That's just saying like, Hey, if you do this, then this can happen. And then the fourth one is offer an alternative. How about we go out together to get that ball? You hold my hand. We'll look for cars. We'll get the ball. You don't get hurt all good. Those are my four. So I'll go through them one more time. So you listen to what they're saying and help them name their feelings. You acknowledge how hard it is being a kid. You help them examine the consequences. If you do blank, then blank can happen. And then finally, you offer them an alternative. And I will say, but this works great if your partner can do the same or your other supportive adult that's with you can do the same with you. So it doesn't have to just be for your kids. I've actually had to have like my mom do this with me. i just like, okay, yeah, I hear you. Right. Yeah. That sounds really difficult. and Acknowledging how hard it is to be a parent, you know, so it can work for adults too. But I think that that's really important for the kids.
0: The only problem I see with that second set is that, um, I'm trying to turn that into an acronym and I just can't come up with a word out of that one.
2: True. I know (laughs) it was good. It was good for the first one, right? Stop is good, but yeah, you know, you've got what L a H O. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe we could, yeah, we could maybe say halo, but then things might get out of order, but as long as you get them all in there, (laughs) the order probably doesn't matter. (laughs)
0: Yeah, well, it'd be an easy one to remember because every time Amanda looks at me, she gets to see my beautiful face and my halo, right? Because I'm such a wonderful person.
1: Yes, it's held up by your little pick shark <laughs> Ooh, she calls it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> We've been together for over 20 years. She she knows the she knows how much of a quote unquote wonderful person I can be, and she's seen my hard moments. So <laughs> I will That's not beautiful. argue with her.
1: But going back to the acronym ACEs, can you just explain a little bit? You said there were 10 ACEs. Um, Can you explain what they are and how that's scored and why that's so important?
2: Yeah, definitely. So um, there's 10 of them. And then um, so physical abuse is, you know, I think the abuse ones are relatively self-explanatory. So physical abuse is if you have been hit. It doesn't have to be repeatedly. It doesn't have to draw blood. If you have been hit, emotional abuse is when you're belittled, um, you're 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 constantly being told that you're not good, um, you're being put down a lot. Those are some of the common ones that you might see it with the parent-child dyad, and then sexual abuse. Obviously, we know sexual abuses that can be the whole range, the whole continuum from molestation to rape, anywhere in there. Uh, With neglect, physical neglect is not being able to care for your child. And I want to say not being able to, that's not actually accurate. I'm going to say having the ability to do so, but not doing it, right? Because there are times where we may not have the resources to care for our child physically, um, but we still do it with the littlest resources we have, right? We may be living in a car, but we still make it work. So when you have the ability, but you choose not to, that, that is physical neglect. Um, Emotional neglect is really just ignoring your child. Um, Again, you know, they come to you with some issues completely ignored. Perhaps you see there's like a latency in speech or toilet training or anything like that. Again, completely ignored. They come to you with problems about their kid, about uh, other kids at school, teachers, things like that, largely ignored, told it's not happening. Uh, gaslighting is a great example of emotional neglect. Um, the household instability, you know, incarcerated relatives. A lot of people think that, you know, just having a mom or dad um, is, is incarcerated relative. But you can have an aunt, an uncle, a grandpa, a grandma. It doesn't have to be even in your immediate family, and it can still affect you. So it's just the idea of the instability that can really affect the kids when it comes to incarcerated relatives, uh, Mental illness. So that can be, I think, largely, you know, for me, postpartum depression definitely affected, I think, you know, maybe probably not my youngest because I kind of had it under, under VAPS then, but my oldest and may have had, you know, a couple of moments where I was not able to, to be the best mom that I could be because my, my depression just couldn't get me there. Um, uh, I would also say, you know, schizophrenia, personality disorders, One of the biggest one that goes completely unnoticed until you're an adult is narcissism, where you realize you had a narcissistic parent or caregiver, um, and you don't realize that until you're an adult. Um, I think that is probably one of the largest mental illnesses that goes unnoticed, um, or at least undiagnosed for a very long time. Um, Mother treated violently. It's interesting because there's a couple of things about fathers being treated violently, and it just doesn't have that same impact. So it's really interesting, and I'm sure we you know, could have a whole other conversation about that, but there's really something that really impacts the child when they see their mother being treated violently. Uh, substance abuse. So if either parent had um, substance abuse, it can also be um, you know, an aunt and uncle, anybody that's largely taking care of them or primary caregiver substance abuse. A lot of that is Kind of uh, debatable with how with like you know cannabis use. I think there are definitely cultures who view cannabis as just the same as they would heroin, and there are cultures who say you know cannabis is fine, uh, it's healing, it's of the, of the earth, all of these things. I ju- I think that was largely really depends on your culture. And then divorce. And I'm gonna you know be <laughs> uh, an advocate for for divorce here because there are many times where leaving and and breaking a marriage is more healthy for the kids than staying in a a marriage and keeping that. So I am one of probably the few (laughs) women that uh, will say that I'm not quite sure if divorce should be there. I think that divorce impacts our kids, definitely. I'm not quite sure if it's always adversely. I think that there are several, several relationships that Uh, And families that do much better when you reshape it and reconfigure the family. So I'll keep divorce there because I wasn't the original researcher and I respect that research that has been done. Um, But I will say that divorce doesn't always adversely affect our children in a way that we may think so.
0: So how do they score that? Your, your ACE score and, and how does, how, what, what does that mean? I guess when you have a, a specific ACE score in your life?
2: Yeah. So essentially, um, you know, in California we have mandated ACE screening at our pediatric wellness visits, And so, um, everybody gets screened basically at your pediatric well visit. And so, uh, you will be given this, you know, they'll ask you if you've experienced any of these things, and then you get a point for each one. If you have about a four or above, that is considered a high ACE score. Um, And the way that we really think about it is that, you know, um, four or more, really, ACEs are incredibly common. I think that first needs to be said. ACEs are incredibly common, like 67% of the people during this original study had at least one ACE and 13% had four or more ACEs. So it's, it's not really uncommon to have at least one ACE in, in this world. But once you get up to four, that's when we start to look at uh, other services, right? So the way that our clinic works is they'll be screened at their healthcare provider. And then if they have four or more, they will be, um, uh, I wanna say referred, more like warmly handed off to our clinic where we'll do, um, you know, anything from individual to family to dad. So that's at what that point is when we start to warmly hand off into our clinicians and and get them into therapy and family therapy. And some of that starts as early as five. Um, Some of that doesn't start until later off in in the game and when they're, you know, nine, 10, 13 even. So, um, you know, I think the biggest thing That is important is to see that there is a link between the medical part and the psychological part, right? It's not just you've experienced trauma. Let's work through that in psychology. It's like you've experienced trauma and your body has now kept the score. Your nervous system is disrupted. Your cardiovascular system is, you know, elevated most of the time and you've got inflammation and that can damage your arteries over time. Your immune system is constantly firing, so you're at higher risk for infection. Uh, Your endocrine system, you know, toxic stress, the impact grows and develops over time. And so your endocrine system is responsible for weight management and things like that. So if you don't get it under check, that leads to obesity. Um, It leads to changes in the timing of puberty and other sort of issues. So the focus of ACEs is not just that these terrible things have happened to you. It's that and your body is keeping the score.
0: Now, when you look at adults who, who are seeing this stuff for the first time or really beginning to take this into account into their own lives, what do we do with, with adults when you suddenly realize that you've got an ACE score out of a, of a 15 out of 10?
2: <laughs> yes. So as I said before, early is better, but it's never too late. So talk to professionals, right? Definitely, with you know, the ACEs scores is available online. Anybody can take it. We recommend it at Center for Youth Wellness to do it with a licensed practitioner because the questions alone can just bring up a lot of stuff. So the re-traumatizing is definitely something that can happen if you're taking it on your own. It's just nice to take it with somebody that you can talk through things right away. So if you've, if you've taken it and you're like, yep, 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 that's me, that's me, and you also take note of your health, like okay, I am definitely overweight, I, you know, could definitely have, probably have high cholesterol, so you, you have to take stake in both of them, and if it's just too much to take stake of one or the other, take stake of your physical health because the physical health is something that t- typically people are able to like, see noticeable differences. They feel a little bit more motivated. Um, it's not that one is more important than the other, it's just a simple fact that us as humans are motivated a little bit more by tangible things that we can see and change. So we can change our weight, we can bring down our cholesterol, we can increase our cardiovascular activity, all of those things. Once those things feel a little bit more manageable, Start to revisit those, those adverse, you know, experiences. Do it with somebody you trust, someone that will validate you, somebody that will positively encourage you, and somebody that will reduce the stigma of getting help and the things that happen to you. So I say you really need to take care of both, but I know that can be overwhelming. As for me, it was extremely overwhelming, and I chose to tackle my weight first. I knew I was obese. I knew I was dangerously close to being diabetic. Um, and I was able to, to wrap my head around what I needed to do to get those down before I could actually wrap my head around getting back into therapy and talking about my trauma as a child.
0: I know you mentioned, you know, the, your struggles with postpartum. Um, do you think that that's related to some of the stuff that you, you experienced in your childhood?
2: Absolutely. Yes, for sure. Um, And my mom was a single mom um, and we came from a town. She was, she's fair skinned. um, And so, you know, white by nature. And um, my dad was black. And so there was still a lot of racism um, at that time. And I was, my mom was told if she doesn't come out with nappy hair, just don't tell her about her dad. So I was already kind of having these shameful things in utero. Um, And then, of course, when I was born, um, my mom and my dad separated roughly about three years after that. Um, So I was born out of wedlock. My family was pretty religious. You know, there are a whole bunch of other things that kind of went into it. Um, And then I was also born with a congenital cataract because uh, they had to use forceps um, in order to for a successful delivery. So, and my mom at the time didn't have insurance, and so she had to go with a, a practicing doctor, not somebody who was actually a licensed doctor. So, all of those mini traumas, I like to call them, kind of added up for my mom, and she did the absolute best that she possibly could. And I was lucky enough to have um, a grandpa that stepped in as my father figure, and I, you know, had a village eventually. But what I saw was that you you have to be okay eventually you just have to be okay and that never clicked for me so I think what it was was it was seeing my mom's trauma and then it was also that I had um you know my my hormonal my hormonal system was not really coming up to play so the serotonin wasn't spiking the dopamine wasn't spiking things were just kind of at a low-level lull, and and I was able to find joy, absolutely, and I was able to, you know, nurse my child and do all of the things that you're supposed to do as a quote-unquote happy mom, but the, the childhood story continued. Um, I, I had sexual abuse in my past that I never dealt with, and I never told anybody, and so that started to pop up of just the images that would come up in my head of like oh my goodness what if my child is taken and then I, would, my mind would just run crazy with all of the horrible things that could happen to my kid and they all had to deal with sexual abuse so absolutely that constant you know imagery that would pop up and the constant oh my gosh what if it kept me at a very low level of energy and that depression just continued way past what is considered postpartum.
0: Wow. Well, and you, you kind of glossed over something earlier. I just wanted to go back and mention it. The fact that you're three years sober, because you know, I'm slightly ahead of you. I'm about four and a half. So just keep trying to catch me. And (laughs) that's the best advice I give anybody who's, who's behind me on that journey. Um, but yeah, because, you know all those traumas in our life; it really feeds those addictive. Um, I, I want to say addictive personalities, but I think oftentimes that's a bit of a misnomer. I think it's the addictive brain more more likely.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I one hundred percent agree with you. And I don't. I always say when you know when somebody starts talking about addictive personalities, and I say you know it's not really a choice, right? And and I know that personality things aren't necessarily a choice, but I was not born with choice. A- temperament, my mom, I was not born addicted to drugs, right? So I don't have this pre uh, kind of wired um, or, or, or or like, you know, my body wasn't already addicted to a drug. I chose that because it helped me with my anxiety. It helps me with my depression. It helps me feel connected. It helped me with my isolation. And quite frankly, it kept the thoughts away. It kept them at bay. And so, you know, my that was basically my brain uh saying, you know, let's not think about that. Uh there is no saber tooth tiger. And the only way that I could reckon with the fact that there was no saber tooth tiger was to either drink or smoke. Um, so absolutely. I, I totally think that you're right about the addictive brain. Um, so thank you for that. I appreciate and congratulations on on four and a half. That's
1: that's incredible.
0: Well, thank you. Um, But let let me push a little bit deeper in there to something you just said, because I don't know of much research that's been done, but of the four kids we've we've adopted, we know that at least two of them had some very, well, all of them had some very early childhood um, drug exposure. And I know our youngest is, um, he was born exposed to methamphetamines. He was addicted enough at at his birth that he spent the almost two weeks on a methadone wean down in the hospital before he was able to come home. Then once he did come home, um, he was taken from mom. He was given to a family member who had him for one night and he said, I'm out. I can't do this because if you've never experienced a baby who's withdrawing off of methamphetamines or methadone, I mean, that's, I'm going to tell you that one's rough. Any drug. Yeah. Yeah. That one's rough for an infant, for a newborn. And, uh, I just happened to be the personality to take that. And, um, At that point, our our oldest daughter was spending a lot of time in the hospital. She was very ill with a very rare disease and my wife spent a lot of time up there and so I was home with a drug-addicted baby and uh, all I'm going to say is God puts kids in the place they need to be sometimes in that moment because little Mr. Frankie was, I mean, he was a handful, but I'm the guy wired for that for some reason and he stayed, you know, he he, he did really well in our house through that time and the part that, that I'm, not always certain how to handle though because there's not much science around it is what does that mean for him as he grows older and the other kids who are even exposed at a young age because i'm not certain what that's going to mean in his little brain and his in his personality and his psyche and in the way his brain develops as to what that's going to to lead us through with him yeah
2: yeah that's a really great question and you know, I don't I don't actually have the answer to that and I think that that is something that I don't know if it's being studied um, but it is interesting to think about when our brains are already at a young age during that during that time where we have you know a high level of myelination or or pruning where you know we go to sleep and our we kind of have a garden team that goes in and takes the stuff that we didn't use for that day, and you know, prunes the trees that we did use, so to speak, and keeps everything kind of intact. That's what happens if that 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 team is largely, you know, not functioning at the same level, or if it's completely busted, right? Like I don't I don't know what happens, but you're you're absolutely right to be thinking about that because um, we talk about what happens when our parents are are you going through substance abuse and what that can do but we don't actually talk about at least from where i have been haven't seen what happens to the kids who are born addicted
0: and i understand that most um most doctors aren't willing to even try to figure out how to do an ethical study on the um the effects on measurable amounts of of different drugs in in the body and brain while a child's in utero there's just not an ethical way to do that study because most of the people who who are using some sort of illicit substance are not going to step in for a, uh, for a study and no doctor is going to be able to, to say, Hey, I know this is going on and, and create some sort of study around that. So it leads us to a lot of question marks. I think that's probably one of the challenges that we're going to face as, as a culture until, Well, I was going to say until we get rid of this whole scourge of of drugs in in our land, you know, because, you know, and I don't argue about the the marijuana thing a whole lot with people, but in our area, honestly, the real scourge of drugs has been methamphetamine and heroin use because they're both very cheap and very accessible and very common. And I see a lot of the kids that we deal with who struggle with that. Yeah,
2: you know, San Francisco, um, I think San Francisco's biggest thing is cannabis, and so you've got kids, you know, vaping at a very young age. Um, but I think right now, this, you know, at least, again, you know, I'm, I'm in a place of privilege, so I, I have to first reckon with that. But I, I think, from what I see, the kids who are seeing heroin abuse and methamphetamine abuse are not quite seeing the the luxurious side of it, versus we have, you know, uh, micro dosing, especially in the Silicon Valley and people who are coming up with these apps and different, you know, ventures and uh, different entrepreneurial, uh, I guess, dreams, so to speak. Uh, micro dosing with um, LSD and different things like that is very popular, um, and so that that happens quite a bit, and it happens amongst our are teens who are actually really privileged and well-off. So that can be a little bit more, for me, a little bit more scary as a parent because uh, it's expensive. And so, you know, when something's expensive and accessible, it, it it just kind of opens up a whole different channel for like how do you get the money, right? It's not a matter of how do you get the drug because that's easy, but how do you get the money to get the drug? And so you've got petty crimes, you've got a lot of theft, you've got a lot of robberies and things like that. Um, but I think you know it's 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 becoming different. I think as this, as we get a little bit, uh, I guess, more into the health culture, but I still haven't seen it hit in the drug scene. I've seen it hit in the alcohol scene, where it's a lot more popular to have, you know, your non-alcoholic beverages, and there's just a whole slew of industry that's out there for non-alcoholic beverages, but um, I have yet to see that for the drug industry, and I don't know if it will ever happen because it's not really a, there's not really anything that you can replace. There's not a great replacement for those drugs and the things that it offers and the, you know, the reprieve that it offers for some folks.
1: Well, and I want to hit on you know you talk about it's different where you're from, and it's definitely different where we're at because we have a child that's struggling with marijuana usage, and we can't find a single place that will help us because it's only marijuana.
2: Yeah, isn't that funny? Um, you know, I think that comes up a lot too in in divorce cases and trying to to say like you know I. I as a parent, I think I should have the most custody because this other parent is using marijuana multiple times a day. People don't touch it. So it's, it's very interesting that it has become, you know, not just accepted, but really not even looked at anymore as, as something that could be potentially an issue. So I, yeah, I'm, I can imagine as a parent how frustrating that would be because I imagine it's very similar here in San Francisco. What else? What else is going on besides that? That's not,
1: that's not that bad. Right. Right. And I mean, I'm not here to say I'm pro or, or against marijuana. You know, I have seen, you know, in my, in my own life um, I take care, I used to take care of people with special needs and one of them had a seizure disorder and taking her medications that happened to be, you know, marijuana, really, really helped. It did really help with her seizures. So I think there's definitely some medical purposes there, but when we're just using it to alter our state of mind and our reality, we're not facing the reason why we're doing that.
2: Yeah. You bring up a really good point of, you know, it's one thing to be treating things medically. And, and, and I think another thing that's You know, very becoming a lot more popular here in the Bay Area is the use of MDMA for post traumatic stress disorder. And so I think you're right on when you start to talk about the medical impacts of it. And I'm all for, you know, using things that are non conventional to have a, a, a very beneficial medical impact. I'm all for that. But when we're just using and we don't really know why we're using it if it's not really actually uh, benefiting our body, you know, there does come a point where you are, you know, not, you're not using it. So I think it's a federal thing too of just, you know, what are the best practices? What are the, what are the guidelines for using marijuana in such a way that it is you know, for a good purpose and for health purposes. And, and at what point do you cross over into just being recreational? Right. So yeah, there's a lot of questions around that. And I, I agree with you. I'm, 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 neither, neither for nor against, um, but I am for checking in on why we're using it.
0: Yeah. That's one of the things in our culture that just seems to be pervasive is that oftentimes it's not for anything other than just a chemical shortcut to a, a place of, um, I hate to even say happiness a moment of happiness maybe I think that's probably where it begins and um, then eventually it becomes a thing that just fills in that hole and it's it's a chemical shortcut and that takes away especially kids teenagers ability to work through things and get to a, a place where they're actually content with their own lives and they become dependent on that chemical for that shortcut
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, shortcuts are, that's a really great way to put it. And and I think that they're sought after. I I think that especially given the time that these teens now have grown up with internet their whole life, you know, I, I think at least for myself, I grew up when the internet was just coming. And so it was like I had a portion of my life where I didn't have the internet. And so I didn't really, you know, I couldn't search for shortcuts. <laughs> they just didn't exist. Cliff Notes was like the like ultimate shortcut that I had, right? So uh, I I think that you're absolutely right. There's a shortcut to resilience. There's a shortcut to coping. And I think that when we talk about shortcuts and we talk about, you know, life hacks, they're great. And I think that we need to kind of think about our our drug and... Toxic stress and you know Aces and we need to start thinking about it with a little bit of a tech and innovative mindset of like look people are going to be searching for shortcuts from here on out like we're just taking shortcuts right like I don't think we're going to be going back to the way of not taking shortcuts so if that's the case what is the shortcut to resilience if you've struggled with Aces you know and if it is going to be cannabis if it is going to be you know a drug of, of some sort. How do we regulate that? How do we really get the best practices of that? Can we start doing studies to see if, you know, indeed, uh, you know, smoking two times a day does, you know, help with your trauma and help with your ACEs? I think that we really need to start thinking about that um, because shortcuts are are the new way. I think we should make a shirt or a cup or something about that. Shortcuts are the new way. I really like that.
0: Yeah, I'm not convinced that that the shortcuts necessarily lead you to the exact same place. Usually, Um, I see sometimes it leads us to something that looks similar, but it's not quite the same. And once you, and again, a lot of it comes down to intention, how you use things, whether or not it's something that can be beneficial for you in the long run. For me, my chemical shortcut of choice was uh, was bourbon. And I can say that I, you know, like I, I love the taste of bourbon. I haven't had any bourbon. In four and a half years but there's a reason for that and, and I won't dive off into my own issues that, that it took me years to, to really fully understand why I was doing what I was doing and where but I know that where it took me to was not a place of happiness or health or healing what it took me to was a place of numbing and that allowed me to at least turn off the pain but it didn't do anything to heal me
2: mm-hmm. absolutely and um- my shortcut was champagne. It was a shortcut to feeling uh, good enough as a parent, which I had already struggled with for a long time. It was a shortcut to feeling um, a release of stress. It was a shortcut to feeling connected to my partner, that, okay, here we are as parents, we can you know let our hair down, it's Friday. It was a shortcut to feeling comfortable in my skin at, at any parent event or any event, quite frankly. And you're absolutely right. I ended up in the same spot as you um, and it wasn't healing. It wasn't healthy. And so I think that you're, you're, you're hitting on something that's really key, which is that shortcuts exist, uh, but they don't necessarily exist to healing. There's really no shortcut to healing. And that goes for the physical and the mental piece of, of health. Um, there's no shortcut around ACEs. There's no shortcut. toxic stress and dealing with toxic stress you have to go the long route um and it's not a quick fix either so I think that you know as you can probably attest to with sobriety you know the first like couple days are like uh, I don't know for me anyways, first couple weeks for hell right and then eventually it wasn't so bad and then eventually and then after that it got bad again and you know so it's like a wave right and it's not always so easy and there's still times where I will hear a champagne bottle and I'll be like, oh man, you know, today's the day. We're just going to start, we're going to start the count all over again. (laughs) So I totally feel like a lot of people uh, feel like it's kind of should be, you know, this, this journey that is continually getting better and feeling better and healing and trauma, working through trauma is not like that. It is difficult And then it gets easy and it's beautiful and then it's difficult again and then it sucks and then it's fantastic and beautiful and it's layered. It's complex and there's no shortcut to it. But in the end, you will get to a place that is more healing and is more healthy than where you started.
0: I love that. And that's what we're all really searching for, right? Is that pathway to the, uh, the pathway to the place that's more beautiful than where we started absolutely and most of us have a hard time in the hard places believing it even exists but but it's there it's just there for us to find and we have to be willing to do the hard works to ser- the hard work to search it out yep
2: that's right well said
0: now what was the name of the organization you said you are working with again i know you said it and i don't want yeah, to make-
2: I work <laughs> no problem i work for center for youth
0: wellness okay and is that a place where people could reach out to you if they wanted to touch base with you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we're, I'm on the website, um, under our team, you can certainly find us there, but it's, um, center for youth is the organization. And a lot of the, uh, content that I shared with you today comes from our, um, our parent facing or community facing initiative, uh, which is stress health. And, The idea of that was that we all deal with stress and that there's a healthy way to deal with that. So Stress Health put together, stresshealth.org. There's a lot of great there's toolkits on there. There's video that you can watch. All sorts of things about the ACEs and toxic stress. And the seven domains of wellness is what we uh, ask our parents and and communities in general to kind of take stake in and take stock in and uh, consider those as ways you can mitigate your toxic stress. So, yeah, I'm there. I'm
0: all around. <laughs> all right. Well, that that's great. That way, people can find you online if they would like to. Um, I make sure that we get that linked up in the show notes because um, that's the easiest place to put some links so people can find you. I just want to thank you for coming in here today, Doctor G, and giving us your time and being so open and vulnerable with not only giving away plenty of free advice and helping people, but also being open and vulnerable with your own experiences.
2: Thank you. Thank you for offering that space. Great to do that. And be able to do that. Supportive a place. So,
0: thank you. Okay, Foster Care Nation. Thank you for listening to Dr. G's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you would like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash foster Don't forget we have an account over at buy me a coffee where you can support us for just a few dollars a month or in individual times, whatever works for you. It's at buy me slash foster care. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always,
1: you are so super awesome. I thank you guys so cool, 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 Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks.